night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Edward Hollowell, psychiatrist and author of Because I Come from a Crazy Family, The Making of a Psychiatrist. When I ask, why do you want to become a psychiatrist? Edward Hollowell would answer, because I come from a crazy family. His childhood was surrounded by dysfunction, a manic depressive father, alcoholic mother, and an abusive stepfather. He himself suffering from ADD and dyslexia and coming from a, quote, certifiable crazy family, beat the odds and build a successful career and life. His memoir is a tribute to the mentally ill and those who love them, and he hopes that it will inspire others to destigmatize the crazy in their own families. And he's been featured on Oprah, CNN, 60 Minutes, Washington Post, New York Times, and many more. Welcome to the show. Uh, nice to have you here, Dr. Hollowell, or Edward. I, can I call you Edward? You call me Ned. I, actually, it's a, it's a wasp. A wasp All right. <laughs> I, Edward, Edward gets turned into Ned, so please okay. call me Ned. Ned, I'll call you Ned. I get it. And I get that wasp tradition. And I'm just going to give you a, like a 30-second bio on myself because your your book, as I said before we got on the air, I really, I guess, enjoyed it. But at the same time, it made me feel very uncomfortable coming from a not a wasp family, but a German-Jewish family, but and not a crazy family, but mirroring some of the, all of the sort of external experiences you had, boarding school, I uh-huh. went to Andover, Cape Cod, all the stuff, uh-huh. you know. Um, so it, in some ways, it was very disconcerting. But let's talk about you. Okay. Um, why I'm did glad you to talk about you as well? But. No, <laughs> well, you're you're a psychoanalyst. You're a uh, psychiatrist, so I don't want to get into that. <laughs> I'm just a social worker. <laughs> I've told I'm you enough. A social worker. Yeah, oh my God, social workers are wonderful. I'm married yeah. to one. Yeah, they are. They're good people, but. Yeah. Like right before the show, I said, why did, I guess the question is what you're 68 years old, I guess about, um, why write this book now? And as we, you know, it's very personal, very revealing. Um, uh, so at this point in your life, what made you decide to, I guess, you know, write this memoir and, and reveal yourself to the world? Yeah, the, the honest answer is because my wife, uh, Sue, who is a social worker, said, you really ought, ought to write it. And I said, well, honey, I'm not old enough to write a memoir. <laughs> she said, no, people need to hear your story. It's not you. It's your story. And, um, and, and the reason they need to hear it is because it'll give people hope. And, and it's, um, and, and really, I, I, I think an awful lot of people come from crazy families. And, and the book is, meant to be kind of liberating. It's not a, a woe is me story at all. It's a celebration of, of, I love my family, you know. Yeah, they were eccentric, and some of them were actually crazy, but, but you know, I think an awful lot of families are like that, and I think we need to really blow away stigma and shame and give people permission to be real, and, and that's what I'm trying to do by example. You know, I sort of get naked in the book and, and say, you know, yeah, okay, here, here are my crazy folks. And, and I, I really love them, you know, for all their, for all their oddities and, and uh, strangenesses. They were wonderfully talented, interesting people. Yes, they came up short in certain ways, but uh, they did their best, and that's pretty much all any of us can do. And, and uh, 
Um, and uh, at the same time, they uh, gave me a chance to to beat the odds, which, which I did through the grace of God and, and the and the fortunate fact that I had some wonderful teachers along the way. And and uh, and, and so the the message is really about hope. It's it's uh, not about uh, you know the. The, oh, look at all the suffering I had to go through. You've read it. You know that's not what it is. It's a it's a it's a book of humor and and celebration. Yes, there's some uh, you know some difficult uh, times that I recount, but it's mostly about um, uh, the fact that uh, you know so-called mental illness is, is got a, a very human face to it and a very uh, colorful face to it and a and a, and a, a face that. Most people can identify with it's not it's not so uh, it's not something that uh, you know you can't understand and I, and I think it's high time that we stopped uh, demonizing and stigmatizing uh, these conditions because gosh they affect uh, uh, most families rare is the family that isn't touched by one or another of the conditions we diagnose. But one of the things, to me anyway, that stood out in the book, and it is an honest book, it, it really does appear, I mean, it, it's straight from the, the heart or the gut, but I think one of the things I kept thinking, you know, when you're talking about people being able to identify and destigmatize mental illness, and given how you grew up and you didn't become uh, depressed or or you were able to overcome all of the, the uh, everything that was sort of thrown at you in the family, but one, but you also are brilliant, smart. You have these sort of inner strengths, not sort of. You have these inner strengths. You had a family that also was uh, well-to-do. You had, I think, one of the things that struck me was your grandmother, and how she made sure that the things that you weren't getting at home or the emotional reinforcement you got in other places, sending you to private school, paying for private mm-hmm. school, sending you to uh, to college, going to Harvard, um, and and paying for medical school, and those kinds of things. I mean, do they cushion the blow? Can people ident- can how can a lot of people identify with that, for instance? Because I think that really obviously um, makes a difference in terms of how you react to the kind of environment. You know, you had the mother, an alcoholic mother, and uh, bipolar. Your father was bipolar. Um, so there were the other yeah. pieces to this, yeah. Yeah, it, it certainly wasn't the money that saved me. The, first of all, there wasn't all that much of it. And and uh, uh, it, it wasn't the money that saved me, but that 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 absolutely was, was not the case. Paying for medical school, I could have taken out loans had the money not been there as an awful lot of people do. So, um, and the private schools, you know, it, 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 I could have also, there would have been other ways to finance that. So it, it, it wasn't the, the money that, that saved me. It was the people, the connection, the, the supports that I found. And, and that, if there's a message in the book in terms of how does, how does a person beat the odds, it is through connection. It is through finding people who care about you. And now, how do you do that? I mean, that that's sort of the implied question. And and is it luck? Is it the grace of God? Is it uh, being cute? You know, I, I was fortunate. And, you know, I was a cute little kid, and I guess that's a that's a genetic favor. And uh, uh, you know, the fact that I was blessed with a high IQ that can work against you. You know, <laughs> as well as work in your favor. 
so, you know, it, it's an interesting question that the book leaves the reader to answer for him or herself. You know, how, you know, the childhood, adverse childhood experiences score, there are 10 items of bad things that can happen in childhood. And if you have four or more of them, statistics show it's very unlikely that you'll do anything in adult life. The chances are you'll have a pretty miserable adult life if you have a score of four or higher. Well, my score is eight. So by all odds, by any statistics, uh, the fact that I'm talking to you now at the age of 68, having had 29 years of a very happy marriage and three wonderful children, and uh, this is my 20th book, and I've had an impact in the field of ADD, and, you know, things have turned out wonderfully well, and, you know, I've, I've achieved my most important goal, which is giving my three kids the happy childhood I didn't have, largely thanks to, thanks to my wife. But the reason all of that happened, the reason that I beat these staggering odds with a score of eight in the childhood, adverse childhood experience, is, is left to the reader to, to answer. But I, my answer is, is the power of uh, positive uh, attachments to people, to places, to a dog, I developed a, a faith in, in God when I was very young, not because of my parents, but because they sent me off to a church in Charleston because they wanted to sleep off the night before on Sunday mornings. And I, and I just, God was sort of this imaginary friend that I just I, I, I adopted because I needed somebody and uh, had nothing to do with catechism or theology. It was just I felt this presence. And then I kind Ned- of lost it for a while, and then I, I regained it again. Yeah. Well, sort of all along the way, and you're talking about, you know, God being your imaginary friend, um, but you made good choices. Despite all of this, somehow, even as a young person, uh, you know, quite young, you always seem to, you're talking about connectedness, connectedness, you somehow knew how to connect to people, and you did it really well. So, can you... Share with us how, because many people just make wrong choices given the kind of background that you came from, but you didn't. Um, Yes, and you were attractive and you're bright and you have all of those attributes, um, which don't always work in your favor. That's true, I guess. But um, yeah, so you made good choices. Yeah. I I don't know why that happens. You see, and and, uh, like my choice in a wife, you know, I was not destined to marry the woman I married. I was destined to marry... A neurotic, uh, uh, martini-drinking Radcliffe poet, and uh, instead I married a uh, country girl from Virginia. You know, um, and it was the perfect choice of someone to marry. She was just the, and she's been the perfect wife for me. I hope I've been a good husband for her, but it was the perfect choice. And I never would have dreamed she's the woman I would have married. How did I marry her? I mean, I, I was guided to her. I looked at a woman uh, who who I thought was a really wise and stable woman who was friends with her. And I said, well, if she's friends with Sue, I, I think I should ask Sue out. And so, you know, why did I make those decisions? I don't know. You know, and, and it's sort of why I believe in the grace of God. You know, so you might call it something else. Good luck. You might call it making good choices. You know, how do we make these? I don't know. I don't know. But I... I do know some kind of force guided me uh, against odds, against uh, what would have one, one would have predicted. And I think that's sort of the, the puzzle the book poses that uh, I hope readers can 
ponder. And, you know, I do it. This book is not a preachy book at all. It's a story book. It, it tells funny stories and, and I hope poignant stories. Uh, but, but buried in there is this question of, of how did this kid, you know, who had, you know, these, this deck stacked against him, um, other than the fact that there, there was some money to, to bail him out, you know, and send him away to school, um, who had the deck otherwise stacked pretty heavily against him. How did he end up, uh, you know, in, in such a good place? Well, you talk about the connections. Who would you say uh, probably influence on you in a positive way? Well, you know, I mentioned your grandmother, Gammy Hollowell, I think. But yeah, 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 very good. Yeah, yeah. But and my, you know, my two cousins, uh, Jamie and Lindy, we bonded together and we were sort of a, uh, you know, mental health professional would call us enmeshed, but boy, did we ever need each other. There was a real positive kind of enmeshment, I can tell you that. We were we were just there for each other all the time. And, uh, you know, the, we, we just had each other's backs constantly. And then there were teachers, you know, my 12th grade English teacher at Exeter uh, got me to write a novel in my senior year, challenged me to write a novel. And, and I, you know, I didn't get any credit for it. I had to do it in my free time, but I was so honored. You know, he, he basically challenged me to do something I would have thought was impossible. And I actually did it. And it won the Senior English Prize. And it changed my life forever. Not just because I, I did it, but because he showed me I could do something I would have thought was impossible. And I basically, my whole life has been that, uh, doing something that was impossible, beating incredible odds. I mean, that's what I've done. I beat incredible odds. And, and that's what I did 12th grade year at Exeter. I did something I would have thought was impossible. And so uh, Fred Tremolo, that 12th grade English teacher, uh, you know, got me to do that. And, and this, this is, you know, it was not at all conscious and deliberate. You know, people say you have to have a plan. Well, I didn't. It was just sort of thrown down at my feet, you know, try this. And, and, I, and for some reason, I picked it up and said, okay, I'll try it. It was really stupid to try that. I mean, I was setting me up, talking about setting someone up for failure. Tell a 12th grader to write a novel? <laughs> yeah, at Exeter, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, but really, but you I mean, did okay. Wait, but so you did that. You got into Harvard, and I, I forgot whether you yeah. you graduated summa, whatever. Wanted to go, decided to go to medical school. But then yeah. here, you know, okay. Yeah. So now this is, I guess, maybe the real test. You didn't get yeah. into medical school, and you're Correct. a kid who was just succeeding when he did try yeah. something or was encouraged. That's probably yeah. to me the biggest test of okay. Now what do you do? Uh, that's yeah. really shameful, humiliating, whatever you want to call it, given where you were coming from. Yeah. Yeah, I was used to being number one. I was used to, you know, and because I hadn't uh, done well enough on the medical college admission test, you know, I'd been summa in English, but now now I hadn't, you know, aced the MCAT and I didn't get into medical school. And my first reaction was, well, if they don't want me, I don't want them. You know, prideful and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I'll just go, you know, go to law school and be a hotshot lawyer, you know, and, uh, or get a PhD in English and teach English. And, and, and then, you know, my cousin, you know, who'd, who'd always been there for me said, you darn well better reapply. And, and so I said, okay, I'll eat crow and I'll go do a year of research. And I did a year of research, you know, you know, really grunt work and, and, uh, and reapplied and, um, Gosh, I'm so glad I didn't stand on pride, and I, you know, I, I, you know, sucked it up and reapplied and got in. 
and uh, you know the rest is history. I mean, it was. It, you're right. That was a very pivotal moment because it was. I did feel shameful and humiliated, and I, and I did. You know, the pride side of me wanted to say, "Well, the hell with this. If, if they don't want me, I don't want them." But you know, pride, and and uh, and I was able to override that and and try again, and and I picked myself up and got in, and thank goodness I did because I I don't think I would have been happy as a English professor or as an or a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, what about okay? So the, you you got in. Um, you did well. Uh, obviously, you had a stellar career. But psychoanalysis. Tell us about that and how the impact that had on you personally and also your career and your life and the way you view things. Well, it's it, you know again, it's so interesting. I had uh, uh, years of. of psychoanalysis and I think I was in my sixth or seventh year of you know this this treatment that you go and lie down on a couch three or four times a week and pay considerable amount of money and you know it's a consumption of time and money and at one point one of my friends said uh, aren't you cured yet and I said well I am in the way that a hand is cured <laughs> you, know, <laughs> I, you know it's it's a process it's a, it's a mysterious process and I know it helped me I know for sure it helped me, and and the the kind of stuff I'd been through, I, I I really needed help. There's no doubt about that. And but if you ask me exactly how it helped me, I'd be hard pressed to tell you. There's certainly no insight I gained that I can point to. Ah, this is the pivotal insight. No, it wasn't that. It was. I think the main thing. The, my analyst to it was this wonderful, stable man, and uh, he basically gave me an ongoing relationship with a stable person that I really hadn't had growing up. And uh, as simple as that sounds, it, it made a big difference. I, I found a, 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 the analysis lasted. It really still hasn't formally ended because we never, we never actually said goodbye. So um, you could say I'm still in analysis. But, yeah. <laughs> and, in, in, and in that sense, the relationship you know, does go on forever. But but it, it was it was a, a a long-term relationship where I met with him three or four times a week for about ten years and uh, lay down on a couch and said whatever I wanted to. Uh, but it, it, it you could call it reparenting. You could call it uh, giving me the stable relationship I'd never had. It it probably cost me about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and and God knows how many hours. But uh, it was money really well spent, and and because I I'd had a I'd had I just hadn't gotten what I needed growing up. It was a wonderful childhood in many many ways, and the stories in the book show lots of wonderful moments. But but I'd not I'd certainly not gotten what I needed, and so and I you know I paid for this analysis with my own money. Nobody paid for it for me, so that wasn't you know I the money I was earning as as a resident. Uh, I went to pay for this this medical treatment does forgiveness come into I, I think you did you write a book on forgiveness or I did, I did. yeah I wrote a book about I, I did wrote a book about forgiveness it didn't sell very well I always yeah. thought if I wanted to <laughs> write a book that sold well I should write a book called get even you know yeah absolutely revenge <laughs> that would be <laughs> exactly. a number one bestseller right away <laughs> exactly. exactly yeah so uh that I uh, absolutely but forgiveness but I mean was that part of the process I mean forgiving your mother uh, forgiving your father forgiving you had an abusive stepfather or 
Yeah, I, I don't, I didn't have to, it's, I never held anything against my mother or my father. They, they were, it was, they did the best they could do. I, I love them very much, and I hope that came through in the book. They, the, my stepfather was, was the one I had to forgive, and I did forgive him. You know, he, he had some real demons in him, and, and I, I, I absolutely did forgive him, and, and, uh, you know, he, and I loved him in his own way, and I hope that came through in the book, too. But you know he did some some bad things. But who who of us hasn't? You know, I mean, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. So, yeah. you know, I think in general the world needs more forgiveness and less judgment. And so, uh, I tried in the book not to be judging at all, and I tried to I tried to create a tone in it of of you know all of all of human existence is full of, of mistakes, and it's a, it's a big human comedy and. And let's all forgive one another, and and, uh, and that's the kind of that's the kind of tone I tried to set. Yeah, well, and I think you did. Uh, it, what about your own children? What was the because you have three? Yes, uh, Lucy, your three. And how, how old are yeah. they? And what was their? They're what has been? 20, 29, 26, and twenty-three. Yeah. So, what was their reaction? Well, each one obviously has their own unique response to the book, but well, no, but how... they they all loved they all loved the book. They didn't know much about this because when they were growing up, I didn't tell them these stories, so they were surprised and they were, but they loved it. They were really glad I wrote it, and they said, "Wow, Dad, that's amazing." And um, <laughs> you know, and they they were very glad that they didn't have that kind of childhood themselves. But, they were, but it's they, interesting, they were, you as a psychiatrist, yeah. you didn't tell them about your upbringing, or at least not from this perspective. I mean, where did they think you yeah. came from? Uh, you came from yeah, a crazy they family. <laughs> they didn't know. They never met. They never met my mother or my father. So their grandparents were my mother's. Uh, my mother. My I'm sorry. My wife's parents, and uh, so that was their extended family. One, my my wife's siblings, and and. Uh, uh, and parents and and my own two siblings um and, and my cousins but uh so they they didn't they didn't know about my you know the the particular problems i had growing up and i didn't see any need for them to know about that but now that they're they're adults you know they read the book and and they really enjoyed it and, Was know, there anything said, they said that heroes. surprised you or any reaction they had to to what you wrote that was surprising to you I think the main thing was how much they enjoyed reading the book. You know, they said, "Wow, these are great stories. You're a really good writer." And I was, I was very proud that they liked it. I was afraid they might be bored. No, there's nothing boring about your book. You're a great storyteller. Um, and uh, of course, as I was reading, I'm thinking maybe I should go into psych- psychoanalysis. Do I have any time left? Is it worth it? Um, but it, it really made me start thinking about that. That's why I'm asking you the questions. But uh, well, your wife is the one who encouraged you to write it. She's a social worker. Uh, and so I guess I should ask what her reaction has been to the book. Oh, my gosh. She... Bless her. She loves it. She she says without a doubt this is the best book you've ever written. And uh, she's a real reader. She she reads probably two books a week. And and she just she loves the quality of the writing. Uh, you know. And and so uh, and that means the world to me that she likes it so much. And then you know she just loves the the depth of the stories. And um, you know it, she says this is just exactly what I hoped you would write. And and so. You know, I feel I feel tremendously pleased that I was able to produce what she hoped I would. 
uh, you know, she's she's just such a, a wonderful woman, and and the fact that I was able to find it within me to to do what she hoped I would do means a lot to me. And it seems to me, I, I, when you write a book like that, or your your memoirs, and I, I, maybe I keep using the word scary, but it, it, revealing yourself in that way, not only just to your family, we've been talking about that, but to your whole professional right. community, to the world, actually. Right. How right. does that right. feel? Because that could be terrifying, if, if I would think, or it could be. Yeah, I mean, I've I've uh, I've sort of tested the waters because I've always been open about having ADHD and dyslexia, you know. So I've 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 done uh, tested the waters in that sense. But you're right, this is a whole lot more personal than that. And and I guess my feeling is, if if we can't do that, you know, how can we how can we make the world safe for people to have the the conditions that we're in the business of, of helping people with. So if I can't lead the way by being open about it, you know, so I'm, I'm hoping to break new ground in that sense. And anyone who would hold it against me, I kind of think it's their problem, not mine. And, uh, you know, I, I guess, I guess I want to be brave in that sense. So yeah, you're right. I'm, 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 I am taking a risk. You're right. And, uh, I, I guess I, I guess I kind of feel proud of myself for taking that risk. Yeah. Well, it would seem to me that anybody who's going to, you don't seem to be the kind of person who would hang out with people who would hold it against you. Um, right. So exactly. uh, in your probably inner circle of friends and or colleagues, but um, yeah, it's, it's a very revealing book. I mean, I, I, um, I think it's just pretty scary to write something like that. Um, I, I've interviewed different people who have written memoirs who have decided not to do that and put it in like and and call it a novel, for instance, because they really right. don't want yeah don't want to get it out there or don't want people to recognize it as their memoir or autobiography because it is too right. scary. Yeah, but you're in the right. business. Right. This is your business, right? Um, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And, and uh, you know, I, and I also think. My hope is that other people will feel permission to be real and open as well. I mean, because, you know, gosh, it's only by being real that you make genuine connections with, with other people. And, and that's the best thing in the world when you can feel genuinely connected to other people. Do you think we only have a couple minutes left? Do you think that in terms of mental illness that we have come, let's say, we've made some progress in terms of destigmatizing mental illness um, or are sure we, we've, we've yeah. made a we've made a, a lot of progress but we've got a long way to go I mean we're we're we're, we're miles ahead of where we were a hundred years ago I mean you know we, we don't we don't uh, put people in shackles and throw tomatoes on them at them and you know but we're we're still we're still allowed to use the worst epithets about you know, lunatic and nut job, and you know we we it's the one arena that political correctness hasn't tried to clean up, and uh, we we insult uh, mentally ill uh, tremendously, and you know there are no hallmark cards. I I hope you get over your most recent bout of depression. You know we 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 still you know we still tiptoe around. Depression and bipolar disorder, you know, and, and, and yet the fact is most people who are exceptionally talented with, with creative talent 
have one or another of the conditions we treat, be it bipolar disorder, anxiety disorder, substance use disorder, uh, ADHD, dyslexia, uh, major depression, you, you, you name it. I mean, it, it's hard to find someone who doesn't have, who has tremendous talent, who doesn't have one or another yeah. of those conditions. Well, I think, I, there's, I think, I think there's a sensitivity I, to that. We have to say goodbye. This was like, uh, we yeah. could keep going on and on, but I, I do yeah. want to mention the book again so people can buy the book. Um because I come from a crazy family, the making of a psychiatrist, Dr. Edward Hollowell uh, is the author. And yeah, I really feel bad cutting you off, but could you just give us a website that we can go to, one or more, that we can get more information about the book and about maybe you and what you're doing? Sure. It's drhallowell.com. That's D-R, no period, hallowell.com. And that's it. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is social worker and author Elise DeRosier and author of the Nanny Manual, How to Choose and Nurture the Perfect Child Care Partner. Well, what's the secret to hiring the right nanny? Founding and managing director of Chirp Connecting Families and Nannies LLC, Elise DeRosier takes parents on a journey of self-discovery to help them with one of the most important hiring decisions they'll ever make. The thought of leaving your child in the care of a stranger can seem daunting, but it doesn't have to be that way. She describes or identifies the first step in searching for a nanny and the 10 common misperceptions 
parents have in hiring a nanny to care for their children. Uh, Elise is the founder of the nonprofit, the Institute for Families and Nannies, dedicated to supporting relationships between families and nannies, and is the author also of Nannies for Modern Moms. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on today. Thank you. Nice to be here. Interesting topic. Well, I have to tell you, Elise, uh, I live in New York City, and boy, I see lots of, and I'm putting it in quotes, nannies on the street with, with kids, babies, young children. Um, and uh, even take my grandson to different activities where you'll have the grandparent, the parent, and the nannies. That's the group, right? Taking care of the kids or bringing the kids to their activities. I, When I look at some of the women that they describe as nannies, um, to me, it doesn't really seem like these, these individuals are nannies in the sense of what I thought a nanny should or, should, should or could be. That's what we want to talk about. Uh, you see them wheeling the carriages, talking on the phone, totally distracted, not interacting with the kids, not connecting with the kids. This is not something that I would want for my own children or my own grandchildren. So let's start there. Um, obviously, that's probably, I assume that's why you felt the need to write this book. Uh, we need some guidelines. Yes. yes, we definitely do need guidelines. And um, the reason that I wrote this book um, really is to give parents pause and um, to recognize that this really is a, a very important hiring decision um, that, you know, I wanted parents um, to really acknowledge that when they do hire a nanny, they are in many ways handing over some of their parental responsibility to another person, and that person often is a stranger. Um, I wanted parents really to recognize that um, that. They, well, I, I wanted first and foremost to ensure that kids get the best care possible and to give parents both the information as well as the resources that they need to make this most important decision about who to hire to take care of their child. And really, I wanted parents to, um, and nannies as well, to know that Good care happens when the relationship, the relationship between the parents and the nannies is a healthy one. Um, and, you know, the um, other part of all of this really is the um, market for nannies is unlicensed and unregulated. That unlike somebody who works in a preschool or in a family daycare home, there really is no government agency out there that is ensuring that nannies meet even the most basic requirements for health, safety, and background checks. So parents do need to do their due diligence and go through an informed and thoughtful hiring process, recognizing not only that uh, the person that they are handing over responsibility to um, has, you know, clear background checks, experience, of course, um, that is needed, you know, good um, references, but also that, you know, how the nanny is caring for their child should be very much in line with how the parents want care to happen. That, you know, nannies create relationships with children, and out of that relationship, development happens. What, Elise, what's the difference between a nanny and a babysitter, or is there a difference, or are we using yeah. just the terms interchangeably? Well, you know, one could look at this in many ways as, you know, how much time 
the, is a nanny or, a, or, or is this person caring for the child? And how much responsibility does that person have with, with the child? Um, generally, you know, a nanny is somebody that um, creates a relationship with the child primarily because she is with the child, what, which can be for long hours of the day, um, every day of the working week. Um, babysitters tend to be someone who comes in as needed on evenings or weekends when parents are going out, as an example, for a date night. The, the depth of the relationship that a nanny creates with a child, if she is with the child for long hours of a day every day, is obviously going to be much different than someone who is there primarily just for parents to go out for a date at night. So what would be the first step in hiring a nanny? I mean, is it something that you would, you get a referral from someone else, maybe a friend, uh, or you go through an agency, um, but you obviously wouldn't want to make a commitment, I would assume, right away, even if somebody looks good on paper, they may, as you say, not really connect with you in terms of how you want them to connect with your child. So, So what's the first step? What do you do? Well, you know, I think the first step, the very, very first step, and this is what I would want every parent to be able to do, is take a step back before you put in that phone call and let the universe know that you need a nanny. Um, the very, very first step is, for, first and foremost, just to acknowledge that this is an important decision that you're making. It's so important for parents to really trust that the person who's taking care of their child will provide safe and loving care. The other is, you know, parents really do need to check in with themselves about really how they feel about hiring anyone to take care of their child, because handing over that responsibility to another is not always easy. And then certainly to know that it takes time to hire a nanny. I generally advise parents, you know, give yourself four to six weeks to go through an informed hiring process. That means, of course, it includes a trial period, which often is a good two weeks' time, but it does take time. And I really want parents, again, to be able to take pause before they start putting out the word that they need somebody and really think about what you're doing before you start. And then there's really the pragmatic steps, I'm going to call them. Um, one, as I had said, because the market is unlicensed and unregulated, then parents need, do need to do their due diligence. So, again, before you pick up the phone, really set for yourself, what are the conditions that I'm going to require for my nanny um, who I'm going to hire? So, make sure that you get copies of driving license, of driving record, verifications of Social Security Make sure that, you know, on your condition list is that you call three references, not just uh, check letters of recommendations, but pick up the phone and call people who this person knows and has worked with. Um, make sure that you let this your candidate know that you're going to be doing a background check and that you're going to make sure that before she even starts that she has current CPR and first aid training, that she has clearance for TB. And of course, if the child is less than a year old, then they do need to have a Tdap or whooping cough vaccination. Um, oh, you're using the word also, she. I'm going to interrupt ahead. you for a second because you're using the word she. Yeah. Uh, can it ever be a he? I mean, do, can a nanny or do you recommend that um, yeah. it, it will be a man or male? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And um, although manis or male nannies, they're called manis, don't comprise the large pool of uh, nannies who are providing care, um, I'd say approximately 10%. And in different parts of the country, that percentage could change up or down. But um, parents often do look to hiring a manny to take care of their child. In my experience, most often this happens, you know, when parents, when um, children around three, five, or even seven or eight years of age, parents often look to a manny to be able to act as a role model for their child. So hiring mannies definitely are on the radar screen, and, and that's certainly something that parents uh, can be making decisions about, again, before they pick up the phone and call or let everybody know that they're looking for someone. What would be some of the red herrings? Now, I understand you you talk about, you know, driver's license and shots and those kinds of things um, that you can verify. But what about the things you can't actually validate on paper? Like the person comes in and you see them interacting with your kid or your child and something isn't quite right. What what kinds of sort of feelings should we be aware of uh, that may be, um, you know, just this isn't, going to work. There's something maybe not quite right here. Or or are there? Yeah. You know, trusting your gut is so, so important. And it, it speaks to that, you know, very fact that you just brought up, you know, you know, some things are tangible references, you know, background checks, driving license. These are sort of pieces to the overall puzzle of making this hiring decision. They're falling the category sort of pragmatic things and doing due diligence. But then there's this other sort of ephemeral piece, which is your gut. And I always tell parents, you have to trust your gut. And for some parents, they can put their finger on what is it that their gut is telling them, and then they can make decisions about whether to uh, consider this person or not. But for some parents, you know, they can't put words to what their gut is telling them. I always, always advise parents, really trust your gut. And even if you can't figure out what it is that your gut is trying to tell you is not right, then move on. It's a mo- it's too important a hiring decision to be trying to figure out what is it that I need to know, but I can't really understand or know. Some of these things that your gut often tells parents is has to do really with um, perhaps, or A, what is the fit between the nanny and the child that you're observing when they come in for an interview? You know, sometimes, you know, the temperament or the the character of the nanny just is a mismatch between the child. And um, that can be obvious, or sometimes it's less obvious. But there is that that can um, come up that, again, gets a parent wondering, is this the right person or not? Um, The other really sometimes has to do with values and how someone, um, you know, what kinds of decisions that a nanny makes or an adult makes about how to um, care for children. And, um, you know, sometimes it's what a candidate may have to say. Sometimes it's in the way that they say how they're going to handle a certain situation that just seems off and doesn't seem right. Again, parents should be trusting their gut while they're at it, while they're asking questions, and of, of course while they're observing the candidate, 
interact with their child. And again, trust your gut. Try to put words to it. If you can't, then definitely move on. And what about, let's say you have a child who is verbal, I mean, who's, let's say, four or older or several children Mm -hmm. that this nanny is caring for. Uh, What about asking the children? I mean, would you, in terms of how what their feelings are about the nanny, uh, maybe after they've been there for a while, or get some response from from the kids. Um, Is that something one should do? You know, um, it's an interesting question, and the answer, it depends. Well, let me start with this. The answer, one of the main answers is that the parents are always the ones to be making the decision, right? That you never put this decision on to your chi- in your child's um, lap to be making. Um, should you be looking to your child for ideas about whether this is the right person or not? Well, then certainly. But again, that also depends upon age. Children, of course, have their own um, their own sort of internal ideas or wishes that they would have about whether they would want this person to be taking care of them, including that they don't want anyone, no matter who this person is, to be with them. They'd rather have mom or dad be home with them all the time. So sometimes, you know, what they decide or how they react when they meet someone for the first time is often can be driven by their own internal wish, perhaps not to have anybody at all, but mom or dad to be with them. Yeah, so you have to understand their motivation, but I, I, I'm thinking of my own uh, kids and my own children. Uh, you know, the my older son, who was six years older than the youngest, and there was a middle one in between, um, had some good insights sometimes. It, yeah, you're right. Sometimes they didn't want anybody there, but I get that or I got that. But he sometimes would say certain things about how the nanny was treating the baby or the younger one. and. Um, right. So I would listen. It's not necessarily that I was interrogating him about her, uh, you know, what she was doing, but it was helpful. I mean, so that, I mean, that's not always the case. Sometimes you're leaving a a nanny with a baby, uh, which I find even more scary. I I find that that, that's a very tough situation because you're not going to get any feedback from anybody. Uh, and so you really do have to be careful. I mean, I, I, that's, I guess, one of the concerns that I always had. But today, what about this? They call them what, nanny cams? Um, How do you feel about that? Where I guess they have these cameras on all the time of observing what the nanny is doing um, with your children and in their house. Right, right. A lot of families use that to give them the reassurance that they need that nothing bad is happening. Um, And they can be a piece Um, to this overall um, puzzle about how do I know what's happening when I'm not around. Um, But there are other ways um, in addition to or perhaps instead of having a nanny cam. Um, And those ways are to really recognize that you, the person who is caring for your child, um, is really in many ways partnering with you and helping to raise your child. So pay attention. You know, you really need to create a relationship that in many ways is like team playing with this person. Some of it has to do with simply just acknowledging that she plays an important role with you in um, helping to raise your child to be the person that you want this child to be. Um, And to be looking to her for 
um, ideas about how she's caring for her child, for your child, as well as, you know, ideas about, you know, not ideas, but information about what goes on over the course of the day. Not necessarily, not only, and I don't want to say necessarily, but not only, you know, where they go and what they do, but what happens in the course of where where they go and what they do. So if they're going off to the playground, what happened in the playground that day? How did your that little one get along with others? What did they do? What did they enjoy doing and why? In other words, you really want to be thinking and um, with your with the nanny about really what does happen over the course of the day. Um, you so know, communication is key, as I hear you. I mean, let's let that's really what's really be sure that you're communicating with your nanny and not come running in the door and dismissing her at the end of the day and not getting any feedback in terms of what went on, rather than being a police woman or policeman with the cameras all over and just relying on that to to get a feel for what, right. what's happening. Because as you say, right, a lot of things happen at activities, it happens on the playground, many things, but it's really important to take time to do that. That That's really key. And given that, I want to ask you about uh, Tiffin, which is the nonprofit yes. organization. Um, and there's a whole vision behind that because, as you mentioned in the beginning of the show, there aren't any really recognizable standards for nanny care in this industry. And that needs to be done. And I assume that's what the mission of Tiffin is. That's correct. You know, I've been working now with families and children um, for um, helping parents go through um, a process to make decisions about who to hire. And, of course, along the way have met with and worked with hundreds of families, primarily here in the Bay Area, and also, of course, um, hundreds, if not many hundreds, of nannies in the process. Um, And all of that work um, has reinforced the need to really provide um, a recognizable standard of care for the nanny industry and best practices to support parents and nannies to provide the best care for children. So that's the mission of the nonprofit. Um, We're accomplishing this by providing professional development, education, and training um, for nannies and um, doing that in partnership with the families that they work with. So that's our mission. It's a a big mission. We have, you know, a a very... um, um, long road ahead of us, um, and if anything, because nannies really aren't considered to be members of the child care workforce in ways that um, others are, whether it's, you know, again, preschool teachers, family daycare providers, um, there really isn't, nannies are not sitting at the table um, or um, really part of the standards and best practices that are established and um, as they are for others who other child care providers in this country. Are you and recommending, I want to ask you, are you recommending any necessarily necessary uh, educational uh, um, requirements like that they should graduate from high school or have or college or a two-year program or is that not part of all of this? You know, I'm 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 um, saying that first and foremost, we need to um, give recognition to nannies that they're doing an important job, and that they should be members of the 
the child care workforce and as such get the kind of support that they need in order to provide good care. Some of that support definitely includes education and training. And the other, of course, includes how do they work collaboratively with parents to be able to provide good care for children. And some of this also includes, you know, what is doing some research on what makes quality of care by nanny and what factors um, are part of the nanny-child-parent relationship that influence um, good care and makes for quality care. When it comes to the level of education and training, I think we need to recognize that, you know, a lot of women come in to be doing this work after having raised their own children and, of course, supported many others along the way. Some women, um, this has been their lifelong journey is to, to be caring for children. They know a lot about how to care for children. They've had a lot of experiences with different children. They, unfortunately, because there's no standards or best practices, because they're not getting recognition or getting support, then um, professional, seeing themselves as professionals, as others do when they enter into a profession, um, isn't a standard practice. So take workshops to be able to learn all of what the current um, research says about how to care for children, whether that has to do with literacy, whether it has to do with, you know, brain development or um, managing difficult behavior, um, whether it has to do with a host of, um, you know, supporting um, um, the importance of of play in recognizing how children learn through play. All I think, Elise, that I'm um, going to just interrupt you because we only have a couple yes, minutes of left. I just want to mention, I think, and, and this was my personal experience, that different nannies, uh, I hired different nannies at different stages of the children's um ages or development uh, sometimes the nannies were at home with me and I was at home with them so that that's that was kind of a different in certain ways set of standards or if you have somebody who is warm and nurturing and responsible and maybe great with the baby up until one may not be the person that you would want with your five or six year old who would, would require some of the things that you just mentioned okay. you know you know yes. teaching them to read or being a part of those kinds of things so it, it it, it, it's sort of, um, I, I don't know if you call it different standards, but um, it would be a different fit. Um, That's that, correct. Yeah. No, it's so, so true. It's so true. And, um, you know, that parents definitely um, make decisions based on the child's age as to what's the, going, who's going to be the right person to be with their child. Um, you know, clearly as children get to be into elementary school, um, and even older, um, parents make, tend to be looking for someone that could be, um, certainly role models or like a big sister or a big brother to them and that have the education or training to be able to, you know, help them with their homework, um, to be able to talk with them about, you know, how to get along with their best friend or that their best friend doesn't like them anymore that day. I mean, all of those, um, those come into play. It's very, very different. Yeah, I hate to cut you yeah, off, but we do different. have to say goodbye. Um, it went by very oh, quickly, wow. by the way. So people need to get the nanny manual because there's a lot more that we didn't talk about cost being one of the things, but uh, right. uh, but also many other. And we 
get didn't necessarily get into all the misperceptions that parents have about uh, hiring a nanny. So the nanny manual will give you all of those answers, how to choose and nurture the perfect child care partner. Elise DeRosier, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 